Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. From Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early. And from Motley Fool Deep Value, Mr. Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Good to see you, Chris. Hey, how you doing? We've got the latest from tech, industrials, retail, and more. We've got a business going public that you will not believe. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Because earnings season is in full swing. So let's start with the biggest public company out there. Shares of Apple up this week after setting a world record for quarterly profits. Fourth quarter sales, Jason came in at $75 billion with a cool profit of $18 billion. I guess the iPhone 6, kind of a hit. Not too shabby. I mean, it seems like it was relatively well received. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I contributed to that, okay? I got an iPhone 6, and I actually really like it. I think it's a great product. But I think this does, these results do sort of beg the question here how is Apple really going to? pursue this in the future, because this is becoming more and more just the iPhone company, right? I mean, we're seeing sales in the iPad uh, you know, dwindling, and we're seeing Macs, while they continue to pick up a little bit of share, it's really not going to be a big driver of revenue for the company, I don't see, for the foreseeable future. So, it's figuring out how to really monetize this phone, and any iterations beyond this phone. And I think the one the one you know, point that I look at with the phone that I think a real differentiator here with this iPhone six is is Apple Pay. I think that that is something that uh, in in time will prove out to be a very uh, valuable part of of this sort of phone ecosystem that they've developed, and they've got a lot of a lot of uh, you know activity going here with with Apple Pay right now. I mean, Whole Foods Market, for example, mobile payments are up four hundred percent thanks to Apple Pay. The biggest challenge they have right now is rolling this this out to more and more retailers. But I I, I think they can do it. They're, they've got the banks on board. They've got the card issuer, uh, issuers on board. They got they, the cash. They got the cash. They get a little scrape from every every transaction. So I think that down the line, I think this is going to be something that will become a meaningful driver to the bottom line for Apple because it is it, it really is high margin dollars. It's just you know it's becoming more and more of a phone company now. Yeah, I think J- Jason's point is actually smarter than he may think. Actually, I mean, not that he <laughs> smarter than a he bad sounds. Point, you but, were about but, to uh, say. You know, if you look at what is the iPhone six, and like everybody else, I reflexively went out and bought one, right? For just because Did you guys wait you for do. your upgrade cycle, or you just went. And paid I waited full for price? it. Well, no, we waited for the upgrade cycle. Okay. I guess I was I on four S before I got the. Six, <laughs> I don't keep track so of that. It was a um, change. But, but you know, money bags. What, what is, keep track of that. What is the iPhone six? Right, it's just a, a big iPhone five. Then you get an even bigger one, the six plus. That's that's like not that innovative. Yeah, maybe it's a reason to buy, but. They need to do more things like Apple Pay. Apple Pay is actually something different. So they need more of those actually something different things to, to actually drive their future. Around the table quick. iWatch, boom or bust. Chris? I'm going bust if that's my choice. Yeah, I'm going bust. Mediocre. Boom. <laughs> um, Jason, one final point before we move on. Uh, revenue in China for Apple grew by 70%. What is that going to do for their numbers over the next year if, if they're growing revenue by that percentage on such a small store base? Uh, there is a consumer class in China that has the ability to buy uh, these these new devices really at will without having to worry about sort of upgrade cycles or whatever. And so we saw obviously the bigger screens and more memory uh, mixed in with an Apple product really played in to a, a large uh, part of the consumer 
class in China, and and that's why you saw you know unit sales more than doubled. You saw revenue uh, up seventy percent in China. So I think that uh, that's that's certainly proof that the Apple brand holds sway there. And as long as they can keep a uh, coming you know to to the to the market with something that's different, uh, something that's new, and something that's ex- that is exciting, then then they should uh, continue to perform well there. Four point seven billion dollars in quarterly profit may sound like a lot, guys, but when you're Google, apparently it's just not enough. Uh, Ron. Fourth quarter revenue and profits come in lower than expected, and yet the stock was up on Friday after this quarterly report. What's going on here? Yeah, the report was a little bit kind of more of the same. You had a decrease in cost per clicks, you had an increase in the number of clicks, the transition to mobile is, is a big conversation. What we saw here, I think, really for the first time, was the CFO trying to calm people down with respect to Larry Page investing in his moonshots, quote, um, and all the side projects like self-driving cars and everything else. We saw, um, we heard, I should say, on the conference call, things like, we're going to balance growth and discipline. We're going to spend in a, quote, prudent manner. Um, So we saw people, uh, we saw the CFO kind of saying, you know, Google, you know, obviously we are what we are and we have all our side projects, but we're, we're not reckless here. We're going to be prudent. And that, I think, reversed um, the stock um, when we saw that the quarter was kind of just more of the same. Do you think that's a little bit of a mixed message, where you have Larry Page on the one hand saying, this is the vision and we're going to use the money that we're making off of search to fund all of these quote-unquote moonshots, but then you got the CFO almost off to the side saying, no, 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 don't worry, we're going to be responsible stewards of the money. It's a mixed message to me. The market liked it. Um, Perhaps the CFO was also speaking about just regular operating expenses, 2,000 new employees for the quarter. Um, maybe we'll see um, some prudence with respect for, for operating expenses like that. But the side projects, I don't see Larry Page really pulling back on that. He's got a vision for the future. He's going to keep throwing irons in the fire to try to hit the next big thing to really change the world. I don't see that slowing down. Shares of McDonald's up this week, not on earnings, but on the news that Don Thompson is out as CEO after two and a half years. He's being replaced by Steve Easterbrook, Senior Vice President and Chief Brand Officer. James, I don't think there was anyone who looked at McDonald's over the last 12 months and thought that this was a business that was really doing all that well. I was still a little surprised that Thompson was shown the door after two and a half years, but I was even more surprised that they're not going outside the company to get a new leader. That that is interesting. By the way, I should say we 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 sold McDonald's from my income investor service uh, not long ago before this happened. But but that's that's my opinion on the stock, frankly. Uh, you know, yeah, it is it is surprising that they, they did not go outside because in a way that's what they need. But, but McDonald's, I think, is is emblematic of a game theory question that plagues many of these sort of like former monolith companies that are now starting to decline, like a J.C. Penney's or maybe a Circuit City. Uh, it's you know, what do you do? Do you try to chase the growth, chase innovation in the short term, which is the temptation, or do you just Shrink gracefully and, and and serve your core market. You know, just be a greasy spoon for grease lovers. I mean, that's what McDonald's <laughs> is, is kind of known for, right? And they have a strong brand, strong business in that respect. Usually, what we see is companies just spin, 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 trying to to, to chase that growth because that's where the motivation lies. Um, I'm not so sure that's McDonald's's best bet. They're really suffering. Five consecutive quarters in same store sales drops and, and visits from like the, the 19 to 22 year old demographic are like down 13% over two years. The, the younger people are just not going to McDonald's. I think that really shows you how difficult it is to 
change uh, what your brand communicates. You know, for so long they've been successful because their brand communicated value. Uh, but but we're in a day and age now where the priority is less on value and more on quality, and and they're going to I think continue to face headwinds in trying to convince anyone uh, of us here at least at the table <laughs> that that uh, they're all about quality and, and not about value. And they're they're trying to to add new menu items uh, that are more customizable, but the problem is that messes up their whole uh, food flow. The kitchen slows down; they have to stop and make this other thing, and, and they're just not set up for that. They've got this like fine-tuned system to, to put out the fries and burgers, basically. So, trying to mix something else in, it just really slows it Eli down. Eli Whitney would be proud. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they turn this around, James, because I suppose it's easy to sort of look at McDonald's and, and just with one blanket statement say, well, people are eating healthier. People like greasy burgers. Just look at the sales of any burger chain. Just look at, by the way, Wendy's stock over the last twelve That's, months. It's done, it's doing great. So it there seems are like better it, greasy burgers. I think that's your point. You know, it, point. it was a rough holiday for some retailers, but Amazon was not one of them. Fourth quarter profits came in higher than expected, and the stock was up more than ten percent on Friday. And Jason. A very different quarter than we saw three months ago when they had posted their worst loss in 14 years. Yeah, it was. You know, what I mean, this uh, for for is is great of a quarter as this was. I mean, it, it really is kind of a lot of the same stuff with Amazon. Top line revenues grew uh, at a phenomenal rate. They did end up bringing some of that down to the bottom line this quarter as opposed to some others. Uh, but there were two things that really stood out for me here in this quarter that I think investors ought to be really encouraged uh, by. And number one. You know, they talked about Prime memberships and really the growth that they have witnessed in Prime memberships over this past year. Uh, and so, the language that they used in that release, they said, off of a base of tens of millions of Prime members, we grew Prime memberships by 53% globally, paid memberships. So, that would imply uh, that they have somewhere in the neighborhood, if you're thinking tens of millions, maybe that's 20 million and they're growing 53%. Well, now maybe they have more than 30 million Prime members. There's some estimates out there that it, that number is even upwards of 40 million and beyond. Uh, but, but in Interesting to note that this came in the face of a price increase, where you know a lot of questions were posed as to whether they would uh, be able to retain members. And I think the question, at least, has been answered that the price increase really didn't scare people away. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Costco back in the day when they did the same thing. Uh, but it also shows you really the power of that membership model because Prime members do spend more. Uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting that I'm excited about here. They will start breaking out Amazon Web Services as their own separate results uh, in every quarter from here on out. And, and so, what that tells us is number one, Amazon Web Services becoming as relevant to business as we thought it would. Uh, it's going to bring in somewhere in the neighborhood of about five to six billion dollars, or brought in you know between five and six billion dollars this past year. Uh, but it is something that they continue to sink a lot of money into, and it looks like that investment is paying off. Jason, as we saw with Google, where they're trying to calm down investors' uh, fear about spending, are we seeing anything about that in Amazon? They're notorious to, to say, "Listen, we're spending." You know, I think we see that quarter in and quarter out with Google and Amazon. And like we were talking about before, I mean, you have to kind of tell investors that, like, this is what you're going to get with these companies. If you don't like it, then just move on. Don't invest in them. But if you're going to invest in them and then start complaining, but just shut up, all right? Don't invest in them if you, if you can't deal Someone's with that longer term out. You know? Right, but that's yeah. where Google, the mixed message comment you made earlier is interesting, because they're trying to do both, where well, Amazon I, makes no kind of bones I, I, I about will, it. And I'll, I'll say, it did seem like Google was pandering a little bit, uh, whereas Amazon, they just don't do that. You're right. Well, at least if you're going to pander, make sure it works. And in the case of Google stock price, it appeared to have worked. Coming up, a future IPO that is the stuff of legend. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, it is not just retailers offering deals during the holidays to generate traffic and sales. Microsoft cut prices in its Xbox and Windows businesses, and it kind of looks like it hurt the bottom line, Ron. Second quarter profit came in lower than a year ago. Stock down more than 12% this week. Yikes. Yeah, a little bit disappointing. What we're seeing is is, the, is a good transition for, for what Nadella has been saying. And, and he's had a good first year. He was on a roll. The roll seems to have gone a little bit stale. <laughs> right however. up until this week. <laughs> but um, what we're seeing, right, Windows, which had been doing nicely because of that kind of one-time upgrade cycle when they said they would stop supporting XP, that's gone. So Windows is struggling now, down 13%. But the transition of the business to the cloud continues. They're probably at a run rate now. They're saying at about $5.5 billion a year in that business but that's only 5 or 6% of revenue. So while it's going nicely, it's still a small percentage, and they need to do better. The big deal here is guidance was weak, especially because the strong dollar is going to hurt results. On the face of it, Facebook put up another round of strong results. Fourth quarter revenue up nearly 50%. Profits higher than expected. And yet, Jason, shares dipping a little bit this week. Why do you think Wall Street was not impressed? Well, I think the valuation of the stock today is reflective of some very uh, enthusiastic expectations here for the coming years and so they're they're really going to have to uh, bring the heat quarter in and quarter out. This, you know, it was a good quarter. I mean, they have a lot of great numbers there as far as active users and the user base goes. I think interesting to note was that the average price per ad was up 335%, where actual impressions fell uh, 65%. So it seems that they are getting better with their ad targeting. And this is an ad play as it stands. Uh, you know, but when you see the questions regarding WhatsApp and Instagram and Messenger and how they're going to monetize those, you know, the, the party line is there, look, we're, we're working on connecting the world, not making money. Money is going to be a byproduct of our connecting the world. And so, you know, this is this is definitely a leadership team that is taking a very long-term approach to this business, and uh, I think investors are going to have to get used to that. But, but yeah, the stock is, is, I think, reflective of some robust expectations. Mattel was scheduled to announce fourth quarter earnings on Friday, but surprise, James, they announced on Monday, which is never really a good sign. The results were not good, and it came with the added news that Chairman and CEO Brian Stockton has resigned effective immediately. Uh, this seems like a business in a little bit of trouble. Yeah, kids don't seem to play with toys anymore. You know, it's, they just want the iPad, they just want some, some video games, and, and Mattel uh, has been slower than Hasbro. In licensing, licensing has been you know the, the saving grace of the toy industry, uh, slapping uh, some movie characters' uh, likeness on some toy, and, and Mattel's been behind. Uh, and even their Fisher Price division, which doesn't really do that, is, is was down like 11% most recently. Uh, they they're losing Disney to Hasbro. Uh, Barbie is is suffering. The analyst predicted EPS was 93 cents, and, and the actual result came in at 52 cents. So wow, not looking wow. good for Mattel. That's a big mess. And when you consider that this is coming during the holiday quarter too, in yeah, some this is time to shine. Makes right? it even worse. Shares of Caterpillar down more than 6% this week after fourth quarter profits fell 25%. That was worse than expected, Ron. And CEO Doug Oberhelman, not really optimistic about 2015. No, this is really all about commodity prices. As I'm sure everyone knows, oil prices are way down, but other commodities too, whether it's copper, coal, iron ore. And you have companies like mining, agriculture companies, they're just not spending right now because their businesses are weak. And that feeds you know right through to Caterpillar and other industrial companies like Deere, most probably. And, and it reflects the bottom line. And there's nothing you can really do about that except for cut costs and, and stay lean until things turn. 
eventually oil prices will filter through the economy, low oil prices, and it should actually be good for the economy as a whole. But for now, that that's not going to be, um, as the company said, in time to affect 2015 results. That those are going to be weak as well. And you know nobody really wants to own a stock when when they come out and say this year is going to be pretty much a bust. <laughs> How concerned should shareholders be? Because when you think about the business of Caterpillar and when they're selling those big machines, those are huge capital expenses that businesses plan years in advance. This is not exactly a business that necessarily turns on a dime. Exactly right. So 2015 is pretty much done, <laughs> even though we're only still you know in the <laughs> beginning stages. You have to look at 2016, maybe 2017. So estimates have to come down and probably valuations as well. Some on Wall Street were focused on Shake Shack, the burger chain that is the latest hot IPO. But thanks to our colleague Alice Lomax, we here at The Motley Fool are already looking ahead to a legendary IPO coming later in 2015. The legend is Bigfoot. The company is BPI, Bigfoot Project Investments, a Nevada-based company that will be offering stock at $0.10 a share. Um, and not surprisingly, this is a company that is in the business of proving the existence of the legendary creature, Bigfoot. What else? Um, I, I went through their uh, SEC filing, and th- this is a direct quote from their risk factors, because every business has to put their risk factors. Our auditors have expressed, quote, substantial doubt that we can continue as an ongoing business for the next 12 months. Yeah, a going concern <laughs> clause from your auditor is <laughs> never a good thing. Before you even get fleece the public yeah. investors out there. And we should also know that this isn't a traditional uh, IPO. There's no investment banker. Officers and directors are attempting to sell the stock on their own. Um, this is a company that is burning through cash and buyer beware. All right, I've got an idea. Right? I mean, it's just, you know, it sounds like this could be something utilize the internet here. Put together a little company, igopublic.com. And just, you know, if you want to go public, we'll consult. We'll help you. We'll yep, take a little I cut. I think there's yeah. something there. All right, let's just go around the table. You have to invest in a business uh, where the business is proving the existence of a legendary creature. It can be Bigfoot, <laughs> Loch Ness Monster, Abominable Snowman, or Space Aliens. What are you going with, Ron? You got to buy shares. I think it's 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 almost a lock that eventually we'll find space aliens. The other three, not so much. James? I go with Abominable Snowman over Bigfoot. I feel like I should do Lochness just for the prospect of playing golf in Scotland, but I'm going to go with space and aliens. Let's bring in Steve Broder from the other side of the glass. Steve, what are you buying shares of? Uh, so the one Loch Ness, there's, it, their oh, photos, it's got to exist. It's, it's <laughs> got to exist. You don't think the photos are doctored in any way? Didn't they ultrasound no the lake? They ultrasounded the whole lake one time. They didn't find anything. It's murky there, though. That's why we need the technology. <laughs> oh, your feet's stupid. Don't want you because your feet's stupid. Mad at you. All right, guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, Morgan Housel weighs in with a few rules investors should live by. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. All your pedal extremities are colossal. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, it's my favorite financial columnist, Morgan Housel. Thanks for being here, my friend. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to get to some of what you've been writing about recently, but uh, as you know, we are really getting into the thick of earnings season. You had to have seen Apple's record quarter. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about earnings season, but let's start with Apple. What, what, if anything, did that report tell you about Apple or the market in general? Well, I think what's pretty fascinating about it is you know, there's this lot of large numbers where as something grows bigger, it should be more difficult to grow. What, you know, now that the United States economy is it's a $17 trillion economy, we're not going to be able to grow as fast as we used to. That's just how most things work. 
And it seems like Apple has completely defied that law. As it grows bigger and bigger and bigger, the growth just keeps going, just, just keeps on going. So the fact that a company its size can be growing like it is, is just staggering. And it wasn't that long ago that Apple was, was doing $20 billion per quarter in sales. And now it's doing almost that in profits every quarter. It's just staggering what it's done. They sold 75 million iPhones. It's just, I, I really don't think, maybe with the exception of like Standard Oil in like the 1890s uh, and early 1900s, I can't think of another company that has just exploded so exponentially and is just raking in the amount of money that Apple, it, it, it really is like a once a century kind of story. It's just fascinating. We hear this more often with, Google than we do with Apple. But at some point, I mean, if you're going to use the standard oil comparison, at some point, does Apple become so big that the U.S. government starts knocking on the door and saying, "Eh, you might want to think about spinning off a division or two. You might want to think about getting a little bit smaller. That wouldn't worry me. I think what worries me with Apple, and it doesn't necessarily worry me. I'm sure they'll have many great years ahead. But a company like that has to keep innovating constantly. It has to keep coming up with new hit, new hit, and they've done a very good job at that. They've proven that they can do that. But you compare that to a company like Coca-Cola or Colgate that makes the same product today that they did 100 years ago. Those kind of companies you can put much more faith in and say, I'm nearly certain that Coca-Cola will be here in 30 years. Is it feasible that Apple could be a know-nothing company in 30 years? Yeah, that's not a forecast, but they need to keep innovating year after year after year. And at some point, you hit a roadblock, and some other competitor starts innovating better than you. So it's a very exciting business to be in. I think Apple's done it better than any company in history, but it's a challenging business to keep that momentum going. This week, we also saw some very large, historically successful U.S. companies, Microsoft and Caterpillar, just to name two, who not only had disappointing quarters that they reported, but they were adversely affected by the strength of the U.S. dollar. Right. Um, and they're not the only ones. And I'm wondering, when you look at this, at what point does the strength of the U.S. dollar start to become a legitimate concern for investors who are buying shares of U.S. companies who are doing a lot, if not the majority, of their business overseas? I think it really goes both ways. Because yes, about half of sales from the S&P 500 are done in foreign currencies. And when you convert those currencies back to the US dollar that is strengthening, that doesn't help these companies, companies like Procter & Gamble and Caterpillar that you mentioned. But the other side of that is that a strengthening dollar, for the most part, is good for US consumers. It gives us cheaper oil, which is a huge boon for US consumers right now. And some of that stimulus to US consumers is going to funnel back to companies like Microsoft and Caterpillar. So it balances out a little bit. The other thing is that a lot of these companies have their foreign currency exposure hedged. So you, there, there is some ding to earnings like we've seen with some companies that reported this week, Procter & Gamble and Microsoft. But it's not one for one. I, you know, I really think in the long term, a reasonably strong dollar is a positive for the US economy and US stocks in general. But sure, you're, you're going to have these issues in the short run where companies are, are taking a hit on their foreign exposure. But I think if you're an investor, it's really not something I would spend too much time talking about. If you have a diversified portfolio, you own a lot of American companies and some international companies, it's not something you should be thinking much about. 
You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with financial columnist Morgan Housel. Morgan, you do a lot of writing uh, on Fool.com. You do some writing for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I want to touch on something you wrote recently for our Motley Fool One service, 18 rules every investor should live by. Uh, And one of the things you start out is by talking about how financial advice is like medical advice. That's right. How, How so? Well, I think that with medical advice, it's gotten so incredibly good and complicated, complex. The treatments that we have available now for complex diseases have become so sophisticated in the past 20 or 30 years. And that's great. That's a huge development and it's increased life expectancy. But if you take something like lung cancer, where there are tons of new treatments, very sophisticated treatments, but those fancy treatments will never, will likely never be as effective at stamping out lung cancer as the advice of just don't smoke. Just really simple common sense advice, just don't smoke. Or the, the improvements that we've made treating heart disease have been fascinating. And we've made so much progress treating heart disease, but it's unlikely that any of those treatments will ever be, be as effective as just diet and exercise. So I think there's, it's this irony, this paradox, I think, that advice that is really complicated sounds better and people are more attached to that than advice that is really simple and common sense, but very effective. And I think that's true for investing too, that there is a lot of advice in the financial world out there that sounds very sophisticated and complicated, and a lot of it is good and necessary. But I think there are some really basic rules to live by in investing that are just simple and common sense, but make all the difference in the world. And that if you follow these common sense rules, you don't need the sophisticated advice to begin with, too. So that's how it's like medical advice. It's a stretched analogy, but I ran with it anyways. (laughs) Let's get to a few of the rules, have you unpack them a bit. Um, one of the things you write is judge investors by the quality of their arguments, not the performance of their most recent trade. That it sounds good. It also sounds hard to do, particularly when you think about how uh, so much of Wall Street is marketed to people based on the most based recent on, trade, based on past returns. And it's it's natural, I think, for people to say, "Look at this mutual fund that did so well over the past five years. I want to own." that mutual fund. And they just extrapolate, well, if the last five years are good, the next five years are going to be even better. And most of the time, that's not the case. There's a reversion to the mean of, you know, there's a saying that past returns aren't indicative of future returns, but statistically they are. The better the past returns for mutual funds, the worse the future returns will likely be. And what's unfortunate about that is that a lot of investors in things like mutual funds will pile in to those funds that have done well at the top, just as they're about to turn and start underperforming the market. We've seen that time and time again with really hot mutual funds during the dot-com bubble when people piled into technology funds. Uh, there, there's a story in the, in the past 10 years, uh, a fund run by a great investor named Ken, Ken Hebner. And he had a great, I think, 2000 to 2007, just knocked it out of the park. And then investors piled into his fund in 2007. And then over the next uh, three, four, five years, the fund did terribly. So we see that time and time again. It's just really important that when you're judging the quality of investors, you're doing it based on because you, you, you like the investor style, they, they're trustworthy, you, uh, you know, they're, what they're saying makes sense, not just looking at their track record and going off of that. One of the rules you write is read more books and fewer articles. 
I find that curious from a guy who writes articles. <laughs> right. It's a little it's kind of going against you're my sh- own profession. You're shooting yourself in the foot there. But I think th- there's a lot of the, f- of the financial media that is in article form, daily articles, news stories, and whatnot. There's a lot of great stuff out there. I think for the most part, though, it is generally geared around daily news, what's happening today, or maybe what's happening over the last week. It's very here and now and current. And I think that really truncates people's investment time frame. It makes them think about investing in the short run, when of course they really should be thinking about the long run. Whereas I think books, by and large, of course there are exceptions to this, but by and large take a much more a broader, long-term philosophical view about things and go more in depth. So I, I've definitely been more influenced in thinking, and I think most investors have too, more by great books they've read than great articles they've read. Two more rules, and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. Uh, one is you're only diversified when some of your investments perform worse than others. Right. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want any of my investments performing worse than others. And what, what happens <laughs> is people, they don't like their, the portion of their portfolio that's doing bad, so they get rid of it, and they put it into something that's doing well. And that's the exact opposite of what you should be doing if you want to be very diversified. You know you have a diversified portfolio if a portion of it is doing worse than the rest of it. If your entire portfolio is going up, that feels great. That's what everyone wants. But that's pretty much the opposite of having a well-rounded portfolio. And it's hard for people to accept that because I, I, I don't like losing money on any of my portfolio either. But it's during the long run, though, that will pay off much more than trying to adjust your portfolio every month or every quarter and putting it into what's doing well. That's a recipe for disaster. As an investor, what makes you pull the trigger on selling an investment? Is it management? Is it something happening with the business? Is it just the thesis I had when I bought this didn't really pan out and now it's got to go? It's it's happened so infrequently, Chris, that I, I really don't have much to say on that. I, I, I really don't sell many stocks either. Some of that is because I'm still a ways away from retirement. I don't need to uh, reallocate my portfolio to cash or bonds or anything, but I'm really a long-term investor, and a lot of the stocks that I own right now, I've owned for 10, 12, 15 years. All right. The final rule you write in 18 rules every investor should live by. Every five to seven years, people forget that the market crashes every five to seven years. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's always this sense when the market has a, a big pullback, even a, a giant one like in 2008. Uh, you mean five to seven years ago? Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> There's a sense that this means that the market is broken, that something's wrong, that this is a sign of, of something bigger that I need to get out because this isn't right, this isn't normal. And it is. This, this is what the stock market does. The reason that you're able to earn great long-term returns is because there's short-term volatility. That's the cost of admission that you have to pay. But a lot of people forget that. And I think most investors' time frame uh, just barely stretches back to the last crisis. And they don't really, it's, you know, you know, so it's been five or seven years since the 2008 crash. And I think already investors have, have more or less kind of forgotten about that, forgotten what it feels like. And when it happens again, they'll panic again and they won't really learn from their past mistakes. So taking a very long-term historical view about markets, about how frequently stocks crash is, uh, is, is something I think is really important. One of the things our CEO, Tom Gardner, has said frequently is that the single best thing any investor can do to uh, become a better investor is to simply double their holding period. So, if you're typically someone who holds stocks for six months before you turn them over, 
double that to a year, one year to two years, et cetera, et cetera. What's one piece of advice for anyone who's, who's looking to do that? Because as you and I have talked about before, temperament can be a really tough bear to oh, wrestle. Sure. I think there are a lot of people that want to have the majority of all of their money in stocks because that's how they think they're going to maximize their long-term returns. And for some people, that's true. If you're young or you have a high net worth and you can get away with that, great. But I think with most people, if, if remaining calm during a bear market to the, so that you can stay invested means that even during the bull market run, you only have 60% of your money in stocks or 50 or 70, that will give you much greater long-term returns than having 100% of your stocks during the bull market and then being forced to sell during the bear market because you are so overexposed. That's what's dangerous. All right. Before I let you get out of here, this weekend we have the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks against the New England Patriots. You've spent a number of years in Seattle. Do you have a prediction on the game? No. And I also uh, I went to USC when Pete Carroll was our football coach. So I have two affiliations with Seattle. So I feel like by default, I have to go Seattle. <laughs> I really don't. I really don't have a feeling either way. But I feel like that's what I'm supposed to say. Do you have a, a, a key to the game? No, I don't. That would be cool though. See, I, I know I'm going to get the key to the game from football experts. I want the key to the game from an investing expert like yourself. <sighs> Flip a coin. Uh, that's <laughs> all. That's. Um, lastly, do you have a go-to snack when you're watching televised sports? I know you're you're not an enormous football fan, but I know that last year at this time we were talking about the Winter Olympics. You're a big Winter Olympics fan. Yeah. When you're watching televised sports. I come over to your place. What can I expect in the way of snacks? You know, I'm just going to say this because we just got a bunch of snacks at the Molly Fool Kitchen this morning, a bunch of new snacks, and they have Pirate's Booty. And I, You're a fan. If, if, there's ever, if, there's ever, if I've ever been clinically addicted to something, <laughs> it, it, might be, it, might, it might be Pirate's Booty. If you want to read more from Morgan Housel and join the Motley Fool One service, just go to discoverone.fool.com. That's discoverone, O-N-E. Discoverone.fool.com. Check out all that the Motley Fool One service has to offer, including the writings of Morgan Housel. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, it is that time once again, time for the stocks on our radar. We'll bring in our man Steve Bredo from the other side of the glass to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What's on your radar this week? Stevie, this is a stock we own, but it's a radar stock, and also I have some caveats. So buyer beware for the <laughs> wow, sounds good here, Is that enough disclaimers? Modine Manufacturing, MOD. They're a maker of heat transfer products for trucks and cars, uh, you know, radiators, condensers, oil coolers. I really like the stock. I think it's about 30% undervalued, but much like we talked about with Caterpillar earlier, they could be in some trouble when they report Wednesday. I'm waiting to see um, on February um, 4th. Uh, they might be in the same boat as Caterpillar, where people are just not buying agricultural equipment, not buying mining equipment, and that's going to hurt their business. And if so, maybe some adjustments to valuation would be necessary. So really look into Wednesday. Steve, a lot of caveats there. Question about <laughs> Modine? So if gas prices stay really, really low, I guess Modine does much better. 
Well, uh, well, maybe, but the agriculture and mining uh, companies will not be spending as much because they won't have the profits. Um, these energy companies, these energy companies that are affected won't have the profits they used to, so they won't be able to spend so much on equipment, which would actually be bad for Modine. Sounds like a lose-lose, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, Did I mention it was undervalued? Um, before we move on yeah. to James, you made the Caterpillar comparison. Are, are they selling equipment as big and as expensive as what Caterpillar sells? No, but Caterpillar is a customer, so okay. it falls if you know it filters gotcha. through. James Early, what's on your radar Peter, this week? Peter Lynch, Chris, said to buy what you know and love. Uh, there's also a James Early school of thought to buy what you hate and can't avoid using. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Verizon uh, this month. You know, we, we all, have, many of us have horror stories about Verizon, but it's a solid company. There's currently a price war in, in the mobile phone business, and Verizon is best equipped to win that war. It has the lowest churn rate. It has the highest profitability. They actually make money, whereas uh, Sprint, for instance, and T-Mobile are, are not. They're really suffering. So Verizon Verizon also pays a 4.6% yield. It's hard to find one of those that's not some weird stock these days. So I'm going with Verizon. And the ticker symbol? VZ. Steve Broido, question about Verizon? Who is the biggest? Is it Comcast? Is that the competitor I should be looking well, at? Well, AT&T is, is the other kind of big wireless. I mean, they're the only other like real wireless company. But Verizon's at Fios. They're everywhere. Oh, they have that too. Yeah, but, but they, they bought back from Vodafone the other half of Verizon Wireless. So now that's like their main thing is, is Verizon Wireless. Uh, they do have other things. Yeah, but actually the, the, the cell phone stuff is their big enchilada. Jason Moser, what's on your radar this week? Speaking of enchiladas, uh, Chipotle Mexican Grill earnings come out February 4th next week, and so that's one I am keeping my eye on. Uh, you know, they really brought the numbers last year. Just a phenomenal performance. It was the year of the burrito. This year, they have set relatively modest expectations, so it'll be interesting to see how they meet with that. Um, and, and, you know, just a few weeks back, we saw the crisis uh, with, with the uh, the pork supply shortage there. They had a supplier that wasn't meeting up to their standards. So, rather than go ahead and accept less than, than the best, they went ahead and, uh, you know, shut off about a third of of their uh, of their stores there from from getting those those beloved carnitas and so I I, I admire management for sticking with their uh, food with integrity uh, mission there, uh, you know yeah it brings in some questions about how this will affect their supply chain going for going forward especially as the company grows but but uh, you know this is one of those investments that you can hold for the next twenty years and if if the market decides to overreact to a to a, a short sighted earnings call there I think it could present some opportunity and the ticker ticker is CMG Steve I'm a shareholder will you ever get bored of that menu uh, no I will not I'm a shareholder too and I go there. You know, probably about once a week at this point. I just can't wait for them to actually get the pizzeria locale, uh, you know, where I can go there too. Are you ever bored with the menu, Steve? A little bit, but I still go there a lot. Chipotle, Verizon, Modine Manufacturing. You got one you like there? I might have to go with Modine just to give Ron some love. Oh, <laughs> love you, Steve. Nice. All right, Ron Gross, James Early, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's show. The show's mixed by Rick Angdahl, our engineer, Steve Broido. Our producer's Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.